Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast hosted by Hema Lomax and me, Lisa Fine. We are sponsored by Corporate Compliance Insights, and you can hear us on the Compliance Podcast Network, where you can hear lots of great stuff. My guest today is Audrey Harris, who is the Managing Director, Global Anti-Corruption, Compliance, and Non-Financial Risk Affiliated Monitor. Last year, I got to know Audrey a little bit better when I spoke with Audrey and her colleagues, Bethany Hengsbach and Dion Lomax, about their work at Affiliated Monitor and women as monitors. If you haven't heard that one yet, it's episodes 169 and 170. I met Audrey shortly after that in person for lunch, and I had a really challenging week. And every interview wanted to cancel, but I knew I was going to be happy I went there. And at the end of that lunch, she was the perfect person to talk to during a difficult time. I got great advice. I laughed a bit and I ended up with a friend. I wanted to mention that as at the outset because I'm so grateful for Audrey and that day because I still reflect back on it and our delicious lunch when you went to the, we went back old school at the old Abbott Grill. So thank you. And for those who did not hear those episodes, can you tell us, Audrey, a little bit about your career path as you are like the trifecta of the law firms, You've been a chief compliance officer and now in the monitor world. Thank you so much. And and Lisa, for everyone out there who's listening, lunch with Lisa is awesome. Always do lunch with Lisa. She gives more energy than she takes. And it was was a fabulous time. So any chance you get uh, to come through DC and have lunch with her, do it. So DC is actually where I started on my compliance journey. And I started as an associate and came up through partnership at Kirkland & Ellis doing white collar and compliance issues right when the FCPA actually was taking off. I also spent some time as a BHP Billiton, now BHP's first chief compliance officer after one of their challenges with the SEC. And then I came back from Australia and was actually co-chair of Mayor Brown's anti-corruption practice in the DC area. And about a little over a year and a half ago, I joined the affiliated monitors team, taking all of that experience within working with monitors, being a self-monitor, so to speak, and working with a team that we only do monitorships and proactive reviews. Uh, So it's been a fabulous um, transition between all uh, kind of four of these uh, different roles. That's amazing. So one of the things I'm going to go back to, because we talked about this last year, we talk about it all the time, and you and I have even talked about it, is last year we talked about what I was calling the Monaco 2.0 memo, Lisa Monaco's memo. And this year, while I was at the SCCE conference, what I'm thinking about is 3.0, the most recent Lisa Monaco memo came out. And I guess my first question is, would you actually call it a Monaco 3.0? I think it's a little bit of, I think we have to because you got to keep track of them somehow. (laughs) So I do, and I found myself doing the same thing, 3.0. But you're right. It's really an expansion and a clarification of things that are in 2.0. And I think as we'll walk through and talk about today, a lot of it's not new. It's just the approach that they're taking, the application that they're taking. So it's a little more nuanced to what you need to get out of this message, in my opinion. Yep. So 
outside, the biggest part that stuck out to me, and I think we'll spend a lot of time talking about it, will be the M&A components. Was, that was the main thing for me. What Before we get to that, what else would have stuck out for you, if anything, from there? Okay, I'll give you two. Okay. The first one is the recognition of unintended consequences. So in the DAG speech announcing the safe harbor policy, she said, there was a quote, in a world where companies are on the forefront of responding to geopolitical risks, we are mindful of the gander of unintended consequences. So what do I, I think this is something that is central to aligning incentives and holistic compliance, whether it's aligning incentives for enforcement or whether it's building your compliance program in-house is what are the collateral risks? What are the unintended consequences of your policies, of your controls, and of your different programs that are operating within your company and the incentives within your organization? Because as we all know who work in compliance, there is no no risk environment, right, when you're doing business. So how does your company make conscious, informed risk decisions at that right level recognizing these potentially unintended risks. So here, DOJ is really addressing one risk or unintended consequence that companies have known about for a while. There's this positive from an enforcement side of companies with strong compliance programs, acquiring companies that are lesser developed programs or have a lesser developed culture, to say the least. And there's a positive from an enforcement side for strong programs to go into higher risk jurisdictions, not to leave that void for others to come into. So if the enforcement risk is too high and can't be mitigated, the boards and the companies with programs that incorporate compliance into their decision-making will walk away and potentially leave a void in a high-risk jurisdiction or in an acquisition opportunity And those voids will be filled with often, as I said, companies or individuals with less developed programs and much higher risk tolerances, and they'll move into that gap. So I think we've seen that in the compliance world for some time. So here, you may also say this is where the unintended consequences and the recognition of that is really important message that's coming through in DOJ's safe harbor policy. There's another place that I think these unintended consequences comes up, particularly within the safe harbor new policy or 3.0. Now, how the DAG focused on this, and I'm quoting this from her speech, focused on safe harbor policy will not affect any recidivist analysis at the time of disclosure or in the future. So in my view here, DOJ's initially kind of strong recidivist stance, if you remember a year or two back, and really they had had some unintended consequences of those calculations where they were talking about, we're going to take into account all of the mouse or bad compliance issues, whether it's antitrust or FCPA, when we're looking at recidivism. And they realized there might be some unintended consequences there. So last year, we saw DOJ come go to some length, actually, to explain ABB and other matters to show a more customizable approach, a more nuanced approach to recidivism. So here again, I really focused on this unintended consequences theme, and they're realizing that good acquiring bad, that's way too simplistic, but for these purposes, good acquiring bad may not happen if 
the incentives aren't there. And specifically here now, successor liability, if they can't mitigate the risk, the company can't, and it increases the likelihood that the parent or even the conglomerate would be a recidivist, it's a reason why that company might not enter that space and leave it void. And that's against DOJ's interests in that area. So that's my first themes, like these unintended consequences. The second thing was application. So a lot of a lot of time recently we've heard trains, trade sanctions is the new FCPA. It may be the new FCPA, but the FCPA un, um, group and the unit in the fraud section has really been the incubator for so much of the corporate compliance guidance in the space. And really, this is no different as well. And I think we'll talk about Halliburton and how this came about. But here, you can really see that DOJ is understanding the cut and paste trick that all of our compliance programs know about. When you find something good that somebody's doing in one part of your business or in another business, cut and paste it and apply it to your whole business or another division. Here, DOJ is showing us again that they know how to do the cut and paste trick as well. And just it works well in this FCPA space. Here, the application to the safe harbor policy is larger and it's DOJ wide. So those are my two big takeaways. They're recognizing unintended consequences and they've got the cut and paste trick down. This application is bigger than just the fraud section, bigger than just the FCPA unit. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about as much about the, the cut and paste point. But one of the things, obviously, the safe harbor in general was most significant to me for that. And one of the things that I've been talking about, people say that is they think, or at least from a practical standpoint, is this giving us breathing room? So it, I've basically said, or especially to organiza- our organization saying, I don't think that this says to you, you can wait until later and hope for the best. You still have to do what you did before, but what... The, the dad is saying and what is in here is saying, look, if you do everything you're supposed to and this company basically hid a bunch of things from you, we're going to let you fix it. And But I think it's an important thing because I, I think one of the concerns initially are that people have been talking about is people think, OK, wait, now we have a little bit of a get out of jail free card. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's significant is that kind of what's the what does the safe harbor mean to you? Well, I think the DAG acknowledged that this isn't the first time that DOJ's dealt with this, right? It goes back to that Halliburton opinion release. And I think many outside counsel and CCOs everywhere use that to guide clients and incorporate to their programs already. And I will tell you that we had a shorthand for it that I've used over my career called Halliburton Light Protocol, which meant that because, as Lisa, the opinions aren't binding on anyone outside of the opinion release process, but it is guidance and it is influential. And so I go back to what you're talking about here about flexibility, because to some degree, what DOJ is doing here is codifying to some extent different timeframes, and we'll talk about that, but the policy means that, as DOJ says, there's more clarity and predictability. The counter to that, in my takeaway, is that it might take away some flexibility. So what counsel and the company can argue, and when does it fit exactly into the box of the policy, it's back to that unintended consequences where they are. But yeah, I, it's definitely no substitute, and we can talk about why, for pre-acquisition due diligence, and I think the DAG makes that super, super clear. But the serious takeaway for me was clarity and predictability, 
might also take away some flexibility. So let's look at that and what that means for your particular company and your particular application. I think that's really important too. I think we're all trying to figure it out because on the one hand, you want to encourage the proper types of acquisitions and growing businesses in a way and making sure, like you said before, that we're having programs that have strong uh, compliance programs. On the other hand, we also there are certain risks that you just need to know. And I guess my question about that too is, she talked about this six month window. Is that, do you think that's a good amount of time or and what would happen if you discover something later? Yeah. In taking one step back from that, when you're talking about, okay, what does it even mean on your due diligence? Hitting that just one more time, because I think it's so important. And I agree with you so much that this is not something you cannot have. The DAG started her whole speech with, we are placing an enhanced premium on timely compliance related due diligence integration. I don't think someone can expect a warm reception if you walk into DOJ with an issue at five and a half months and say, we started DD after close. First, you know, as we know, it doesn't make commercial sense. Two, you're burning credibility But I think you don't have to let the perfect be the enemy of the good either here in this space. What you need to be able to explain is your company's why, um, other due diligence, why you did or did not do the due diligence in that space. For example, it was an auction. We asked and they said no. The DAG also talks about compliance. I think the quote is compliance, prominent seat at the table in acquiring if a company wishes to de-risk the transaction. I'll go one further than that, and I'll say if they want to mitigate risks and actually get a competitive advantage out of their compliance investment, turn that compliance program from a cost center to a value center, they need to integrate that seat even earlier. And I think last podcast, we talked about my theory on you, we are as compliance guides, problem solvers, and gatekeepers. And we spend about 80% of our time in that guide and problem solver space. And it gives us that visibility and that credibility to be the gatekeeper in that 20% where it's needed. But it's also that we are more likely to be guides and problem solvers the earlier the business incorporates us into the discussion of non-financial risk. And I'm saying non-financial risk and not just compliance here intentionally, because it's about integrating non-financial risk in really early. So you can back up and ask, can non-financial risks be part of the discussion, not just when you're first targeting transactions, that'd be great too. But can you can you move it all the way back to when you're talking about M&A strategy? And can it really not only mitigate your risk, but improve your overall profitability and success in your M&A strategy? You know, because non-financial risks have financial impacts, right? And we've seen, even in the FCPA world, investigations, counsel fees, enforcement, wiping out the entire profitability. I mean, actually, being a negative on an acquisition. these That's just to say and to get that feeling of what's the timing on this. You'll never make those timeframes, that six months, they say, unless you're prepared pre-close. And if you want to do one better and actually make it a commercial case for your compliance, bring it even further back and talk about integrating that non-financial risk process into your strategy. Is six months the right amount of time? One size doesn't fit all for any compliance program. So why should it for timeframes? It's going to be that lawyer's answer of it depends, but you're going to have to do pre-planning, pre-close, right? And it's going to be about the size and the complexity of the company. But the one thing I would say, big takeaway, 
I hope you have a strategic CCO with the ability to influence in the seat at the table, because that's what's going to take make you be able to meet that six months. And if anything's found afterwards, it goes back to the Shakespearean question, right? To disclose or not to disclose. That is the question. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's funny. I always often when I when people will say you're a cost center, and I often my thing is people are I'm like I prefer the term revenue protector. Um, I like it. Protect I, and grow. I'm protecting your revenue. You're also orange is not your color. That's another one. But, um, <laughs> I like that one too. So with that, I'm going to change the topic over a little bit because this is something that you've been talking about lately and you've gotten me inspired on it about the original quote is about the man in the arena. But since we're the great women in compliance podcast, I'm taking the liberty to change it for this. And just generally, because it was originally from Theodore Roosevelt, a different time an understatement. But here's the beginning of the quote that I thought was just so relevant. I did look this up after we talked. It is not the critic who counts, nor the person who points out how the strong person stumbles or where the doer or deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the, I'm going to say, woman who is actually in the arena. So what does that mean to you? First, I'll finish it off because it's a little, it's a little, it, it, it's a little visual, but I think every compliance officer can relate to it. So I'm going to say it. Okay. Whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best in the end, the triumph knows the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with the timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. And I say that because I will come back to the shorthand that my team would often use when we were talking about being in the arena and, and it little taking little parts of that out to what we do in compliance. So actually, and I don't know if I ever told you this, Lisa, but my dad was a force recon Marine earlier in his life and then also a real history buff. And at a very young age, he would recite this to me when I was trying something, when I was, it didn't matter what it was. It was about it not, not about how many times you fall down, but how many times you get back up and engaging. And there are those that engage in the arena. Years, fast forward years later, when I met my husband, hanging on his wall was this quote. And it was one of the only things hanging on his wall. And it, it was became a, a, a recurring theme for me. And even at Kirkland and other places, it became a driver to be comfortable in the discomfort. Like when you choose a worthy arena or a fight, not to be afraid to fail, but rather to be afraid to be that timid soul that knows neither victory or defeat, right? It was a way of operating in, in teams. And then it became a whole new theme for me and for my team when I stepped into the CCO chair. And how, how do you apply that? You said a little bit about it, about how you're yeah. applying to all of us in ethics and compliance, because sure. I think, yeah, we're always getting a little bit beaten up yep. and we're always thinking, in my mind, I think about it, we're always working towards an ideal in a way that not every, it's, you know, our goals are not, not we want to help profitability, we grow the business, but we're also helping, as you were saying before, to be strategic and advisors. It's a little bit outside that. Getting in there and just working through that, especially in global organizations, can get you a little bloodied up and stuff. So how do we, how do you think about that for us? 
Well, Canon, how it came, of course, it applies in so many different ways, but one way that it applied to, to, I think, and it applies to ethics and compliance folks. And it was actually something that struck me that I might not be the only person who thinks this way because it was the director of division enforcement gave a speech, I should say, of the SEC, gave a, a remarks to the New York City Bar Association Compliance Institute last month. And he was talking about engagement with the business. And he was talking about, you need to get in there and understand your business's business model. You need to get in there and engage and educate the business. And to me, in the successful ethics and compliance program and personnel, it's not about being siloed away from the business in these spaces. You're not a mailbox. You're not waiting for the business to reach out to you. Your objective, should something be later on go wrong, is not to be able to say, that was not my job, or what do you want from me? But it's or looking for a way not to get blamed or stay for a long career in that company. If you stay in your box, it's getting out of your box and engaging with that business. And sometimes that's really uncomfortable. And I remember one time as a war story of a colleague who came out after discussions um, with the business in a certain place. And then when um, I said, let's go back in, we need to have this discussion again. We need to explain, we need to advocate. Um, and uh, the uh, colleague looked back to me and said, we're stepping back into the arena. I said, absolutely. And we're stepping back into the arena, stepping back into that comfort, discomfort, and trying to dare greatly to bring that value and do things a little bit differently than just sending the email that says no. And I think that goes back to what we talked about way back in the first podcast of prior to my time as CCO, I'd really thought there's two. There's Dr. No, and there's compliant, and there's business capture. How can you be that one that brings that value? How can you play all those different roles? And to me and to my team, it became about stepping into that arena, engaging with the business in order to understand and be curious about what was happening there, to have an impact on what they were doing, a positive value impact on what the business is doing, and strategically protect and grow the company and the business. So that was how on the, on each of these things, we would find ways to do it. But particularly vivid to me are the recollections of engaging with the business. And when also you're going to try innovating. And in compliance, it's very easy to stay with your what's tried and true. This is what I do every day. I do this. I do this. Was well, there a better way to do it? And there's always a better way. There's always that continuous improvement where you can make it better. But if there is some discomfort in that, right? What if it doesn't go the way you want it to go? What if it doesn't work out? Is it better to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay in what I know. Or if you can improve it for the business, and if you could improve it for the compliance team, would you? Will you step out on that limb? Or will you worry about who's going to be blamed for it failing when it doesn't? Or are you just going to make it succeed? So for, from my experience... I think there's no better analogy for ethics and compliance folks than woman in the arena, for sure. Yeah. And I, you made me just think about two things. One is in terms of engaging with the business. I think sometimes we get so caught in, up in our own world that we're trying and we're like, we have a few minutes to share whatever we need to. We forget sometimes we, meaning me, and I work on this, is to really listen or, and, and understand what really is important to them, which may not seem like it has something to do with compliance. And my story about that in the arena was in my old job, and I can't remember if I said it to you before, but 
I would do and at Gate Gourmet, we, we were eight airline catering facilities. So I would go in and see all of them. And in Toronto, I remember clearly in Canada, they had the only dishwasher trolley thing that you could push it through. So I under, started understanding how the differences between these major like dishwasher things were. So when I would go on the tours, like people would be like, well, skip the dishwasher. I'm like, no, we can't do that. I have, I'm interested. And it was just because I thought it was an interesting thing. But I realized afterwards, too, the fact that I was able to talk about something which was relevant to them and they were able to shine for a few minutes and talk about the differences. And, and it reminded you of, for me, it was like, okay, so this is great. And then after that, when I would talk about something they weren't as excited about, pretty much anything I was going to bring up then, we... They knew that I actually wasn't just there to care about the, just to, about what I needed to do. Obviously, they knew I had my job, they had theirs. But I just remember talking about the different ways they washed trolleys was something that it was looked like a, a car wash. So it was cool. It was, you know, it was fun to watch. But I'm just saying, I for me, that's one of the things where when I had to go back in the arena on a bad day, they mm-hmm. at least knew that I was cared about it. Well, and you have credibility in that space, right? And as we all know, good compliance is built around the way you go to business. So if you don't know that, if you're not engaging on that, you are you're not only not in the arena, you're not you're not helping and you're not helping the company in that space. So it is uh, it's definitely a and also the other one that I would say in that is you have to be ethics and compliance officers have to be super resilient. And I think woman in the arena really exemplifies being resilient. And there will be those times when a business or a client or whomever will not be happy with you. Um, it might be a, it might hang up on you. It might send a not, we've all gotten them not so nice email and your response will dictate. You can't dictate that, but you can control your response to it. Is your response to avoid them the next day, not go back into that meeting? Is your response to go up, look them in the eye as a person, ask how their day was and start engaging again? Because I guarantee you the results of that is going to be different than if you just shy away from what is a natural human instinct (laughs) to shy away from, go move away from pain. And if you respond to that unfortunate email with a phone call that says, how are you? How can I help? That email seemed uncharacteristic. What are you dealing with and how can I help you? That is walking into the arena and that is not in our DNA is how we should as humans respond to pain. But if ethics and compliance officers can do that, you can change. If you can dare greatly in that space to do that, you can have an impact beyond anything that you thought. Yeah, that, the one challenge I've had with that before is when somebody decides, no matter what level you are in the organization, if I disagree with you, I'm going to go over your head. You, then you have to figure out, and one of the things I've done in that situation is, especially if it's somebody who's unpleasant, I said, I, don't agree, I did not disagree with any one of their points. I do, however, disagree with being treated in that manner. And you can yes. say that back to them. And then and afterwards, you can get past it. Some of those people become your good friends. Um, your biggest advocates, they can become, you can turn your biggest critic into your biggest advocate. And I've seen it done, I've done it in that space. You just, I know you've done it. Um, but what you, if you enter back into the arena, if you have those hard conversations, if you stay outside because that was, and you watch it, you sit with the timid souls or you decide I'm going to engage, I'm going to, I'm going to walk back in. And really that makes all the difference. 
Yeah. Sometimes you're never going to, sometimes they don't become that, but a lot no. of <laughs> We've all had that product. too, right? Yes. Yeah. You got you it at a certain point because it's, what was it that the money that? It's not just, a, it's not just a flesh wound at some point. You're like, this can go. <laughs> Um, there's always going to be those. Yeah. <laughs> and there's that. And we all know what those are, but you did everything you could. And that is where, and I think as we do tipping point or whatever, you would say you've got, you're going to get whatever it is, 80, 85% of people, maybe less than, less than 20 are not going to be movable are the people that you're talking about. I think the percentage to me has always been even less than that, but it's going to, that you dare greatly in that space. And I think that's what, what really matters is that resilience. And one last thing I have about that is that we talk, you know, talking about being proactive, interactive, and entering the arena. Sometimes what we are doing is going in there after it's over and checking, trying to help fix the damage, especially if you're an investigator. How do you make sure that you're really not being the critic, the, the after the, the fact person, when really it is that? How do you change it? Like it's a root cause versus the, I'm just going to come in and tell you everything that if you did it differently, it would have worked out so much better. And I think that money, Monday morning quarterbacking, right? What's Monday morning quarterbacking? What's root cause analysis? And I love that you use the name root cause because it's not just a cause. You're looking back into the actual root cause. It's the even alignment of incentives, the people involved. You're really digging deep on that, which I think is really aligned to the, to the analogy of the person or the woman in the arena. Because what you're looking for is, and I... Actually, I'm going to go back to the director of Division of Enforcement, the SEC, in that speech, because he talks about compliance officer liability, right? Um, something we're all very interested, I know, even if we don't say it a lot. And he says, we're not interested in going back after people who made good faith determinations based on due diligence and what they knew at the time, Right. We're looking for folks who engaged in bad conduct, yeah, mal say bad conduct, or who really just wholesale put up their hands and abdicated their responsibilities. And I think that's really good guidance here is looking for the person who or the situations that were good faith trying in whether it's due diligence or whether it's a process that they were in the arena trying to remedy the situation or trying to make the right decision in that space. Even the SEC says those aren't the people and those aren't the situations we're looking for. So I think that's really good guidance for us as investigators when we're going back in and looking and saying, what's there? What's the difference between criticizing the person in the arena? And what's the difference to the one who's the timid soul on the sideline who abdicated all responsibility? Or obviously the Malsey person who is in there doing you know, intentional wrongdoing. So I think it works in that scenario too, actually. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I also think that most times in an investigation, it's not like you're going in being a detective. You're trying to figure out, usually it's lots of different things that went slightly wrong along the lines, down the line. But with that, I just want to say I've taken up a bunch of your time and thank you so much for coming back and thank you for everything you do for us in the community. And I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. It's absolutely fantastic. And I love that you're keeping these podcasts going. And I years ago, before I was ever on it, I was a, a loyal listener and just really enjoying it. And so were many of my team members in different environments. So thank you for everything you do. 
Thank you for that. Considering I, I look at your career as one that's a great model for all of us. So with that mutual appreciation, I'm going to just sign off on behalf of the Compliance Podcast Network. And thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.